or download a podcast and you can listen on the go. Listen to live streaming radio or download a podcast and you can listen on the go. San Francisco Mutiny Radio. I was just leaving the theater. And I started to do some thinking. Flat black plastic. Big and Saturday noon to two. I'm a freeway. I am a I saw those rock 
of the program it requires a lot of different facts of life that we must know about and when you think about the various nations of the earth the various religions of the earth the various nationalities the various people all over the world have been able to make anything that we want to make and do anything we want to do. Have created miracles. But it don't make sense when we can't make peace. You know, you made everything else. Wise men, great men, 
from every nation in the world, all the countries in the world, have all kinds of conventions and festivals. Spend all the money. Suppose you had to spend half as much money on trying to make peace as you have been making war. We wouldn't have to worry about nothing. But it don't make sense. It don't make sense. It don't make sense when you can't make peace.
And at this particular time, I would like to present to you a very lovely man.
And good morning. It's Labor and Love Radio. And you're tuned in to Mutiny Radio. The date is December 2nd. And uh, the war is still going on. Can't really call it a war, can you? Not quite a war. More like one side has got all the guns and all the <clears throat> organized power, and it's bent on destruction, bent on destroying people. I think if if some Israelis had their way, there would be no be no Palestinians. Two and a half million people there in Gaza would just disappear because everything would be fine as far as those Israelis are concerned. And this time they've got the bit because there was a massacre that was put on sent by Arabs. Arab organization. For the kidnapping and murder of Israelis. Anyway, we so what we played was Palestine will be free. John Malzane, who grew up in Sweden. Lebanese parents. The song was Palestine Will Be Free. The visuals featured a little girl confronting an Israeli tank. Ah, what's going on? What a place to be a child. After that, we had Willie Dixon, and I'm sorry if you're tired of hearing that, but Willie Dixon expresses in really beautiful ways contradiction, having a war, fighting, murdering, shooting, killing. How far has has mankind or People can progress. Fascism is on the rise. Fascism never left Germany. Huge war was fought. There were 60 million people who died in the struggle against fascism. On with the wind. Still fighting wars. And then finally, we had Victor Jara. Jara, of course, the Chilean the Canto Libre, free song. He was taken prisoner along with 10,000 other people. Football stadium. 
footfalls. Murder. smuggled out from anyway it's the labor and love show got a lot to get to start with our credos credos are things we believe on this show believe them or not, you're a machine. Drop that into politics. Always people saying, drop that into politics. You're just not that into politics. Boss is not. Landlord is. Insurance company is. Every day they use their political power to keep your pay low, raise your rent, deny you coverage. Time to get into politics. Or as we can say, the boss is organized. Are you? Famous poem by Lawrence Ferlinghetti. Pity the nation, these people are sheep. These shepherds mislead them. Pity the nation, these leaders are liars. These sages are silent. These bigots haunt the airwaves. Praising Except to praise conquerors and claim the bully is hero. Aims to rule the world by force and by torture. Pity the nation that knows no other language but its own and no other culture but its own. Pity the nation. Breath is money and sleeps the sleep of the too well fed. Pity the nation. Oh, pity the people who allow their rights to erode and their freedoms to be washed away. My country cares of you. Here's Robert Reich. Reich is uh, an economist. He was Secretary of Labor under Bill Clinton. Teaches now at UC Berkeley. Your reminder that the richest 1% own half of the stock market and the richest 10% own almost all of it, 92%. So when people brag about the stock market, they're not talking about the economy that 90% of Americans inhabit. About outrage. Being outraged that there's a war. Being outraged that little children and babies are dying. Innocent women. Men, 
just because they're Palestinian and live in a certain place. George Sand, French writer, Humanity is outraged in me and with me. Must not dissimulate like a subjective indignation. Stay mad. Get mad at what's going on. Get mad at how you're Tell you a secret? I don't even care if they're undocumented immigrants. Without social security numbers, they can't privy to the welfare people claim they get. The vast majority of them are normal people. Trying to live a better life. This whole wall, deport the illegals, BS is just the 1% again convincing working poor to blame a subset of the working poor for the fact that they're all poor instead of realizing that the reason is due to the vast income inequality resource price inflation combination of age Okay, well, it's Labor and Love Radio where we tell you how it is. One person gets a dollar they didn't work for. Someone else works for a dollar they didn't get. You don't have a seat at the table. Negotiating table, that is, where you work. You're on the menu. Never, but never. Anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor. When I say labor, I mean you. Labor and Love Radio is a labor. We have to look at this idea of War. War is always, always, attacks are done by the leader. In this case, the people in Gaza are just simply targeted. When we pray for, pray for war and say God's on our side, making the point. Does God have another side? Is God on the other people's side too? Here we go with a war prayer. This is a LibriVox recording. 
All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. THE WAR PRAYER by Mark Twain It was a time of great and exulting excitement. The country was up in arms. The war was on. In every breast burned the holy fire of patriotism. The drums were beating, the bands playing, the toy pistols popping, the bunched firecrackers hissing and spluttering. On every hand and far down the receding and fading spread of roofs and balconies a fluttering wilderness of flags flashed in the sun. Daily the young volunteers marched down the wide avenue, gay and fine, in their new uniforms. The proud fathers and mothers and sisters and sweethearts cheering them with voices choked with happy emotion as they swung by. Nightly the packed mass meetings listened, panting, to patriot oratory, which stirred the deepest deeps of their hearts and which they interrupted at briefest intervals with cyclones of applause, the tears running down their cheeks the while. In the churches the pastors preached devotion to flag and country, and invoked the God of battles, besieging His aid in our good cause in outpourings of fervid eloquence which moved every listener. It was indeed a glad and gracious time and the half-dozen rash spirits that ventured to disapprove of the war and cast a doubt upon its righteousness straightway got such a stern and angry warning that for their personal safety's sake they quickly shrank out of sight, and offended no more in that way. Sunday morning came. Next day the battalions would leave for the front. The church was filled. The volunteers were there, their young faces alight with martial dreams visions of the stern advance, the gathering momentum, the rushing charge, the flashing sabres, the flight of the foe, the tumult, the enveloping smoke, the fierce pursuit, the surrender. Then home from the war, bronzed heroes, welcomed, adored, submerged in golden seas of glory. With the volunteers sat their dear ones, proud, happy, and envied by the neighbors and friends, who had no sons and brothers to send forth to the field of honor, there to win for the flag, or, failing, die the noblest of noble deaths. The service proceeded. A war chapter from the Old Testament was read. The first prayer was said. It was followed by an organ-burst that shook the building, and with one impulse the house rose, with glowing eyes and beating hearts, and poured out that tremendous invocation, God the All-Terrible, Thou who ordainest, thunder thy clarion and lightning thy sword. Then came the long prayer. None could remember the like of it for passionate pleading and moving and beautiful language. The burden of its supplication was that an ever-merciful and benignant Father of us all would watch over our noble young soldiers and aid, comfort, and encourage them in their patriotic work, bless them, shield them in the day of battle and the hour of peril, bear them in his mighty hand, make them strong and confident, invincible in the bloody onset, help them to crush the foe, grant to them and to their flag and country imperishable honor and glory. An aged stranger entered and moved with slow and noiseless step up the main aisle, his eyes fixed upon the minister his long body clothed in a robe that reached to his feet, his head bare, his white hair descending in a frothy cataract to his shoulders, his seamy face unnaturally pale, 
pale even to ghastliness. With all eyes following him and wondering, he made his silent way, without pausing, he ascended to the preacher's side, and stood there waiting. With shut lids the preacher, unconscious of his presence, continued with his moving prayer, and at last finished it with the words uttered in fervent appeal, Bless our arms, grant us the victory, O Lord our God, Father and Protector of our land and flag. The stranger touched his arm, motioned him to step aside, which the startled minister did, and took his place. During some moments he surveyed the spellbound audience with solemn eyes in which burned an uncanny light. Then, in a deep voice, he said, I come from the throne, bearing a message from Almighty God. The words smote the house with a shock. If the stranger perceived it, he gave no attention. He has heard the prayer of his servant, your shepherd, and will grant it, if such shall be your desire, after I, his messenger, shall have explained to you its import, that is to say, its full import. For it is like unto many of the prayers of men, in that it asks for more than he who utters it is aware of, except he pause and think. God's servant and yours has prayed his prayer. Has he paused and taken thought? Is it one prayer? No, it is two. One uttered, the other not. Both have reached the ear of him who heareth all supplications, the spoken and the unspoken. Ponder this. Keep it in mind. If you would beseech a blessing upon yourself, beware lest without intent you invoke a curse upon a neighbor at the same time. If you pray for the blessing of rain upon your crop which needs it, by that act you are possibly praying for a curse upon some neighbor's crop which may not need rain and can be injured by it. You have heard your servant's prayer, the uttered part of it. I am commissioned of God to put into words the other part of it, that part which the pastor, and also you in your hearts, fervently prayed silently. And, ignorantly and unthinkingly, God grant that it was so. You heard these words, Grant us the victory, O Lord our God. That is sufficient. The whole of the uttered prayer is compact into those pregnant words. Elaborations were not necessary. When you have prayed for victory, you have prayed for many unmentioned results which follow victory, must follow it, cannot help but follow it. Upon the listening Spirit of God fell also the unspoken part of the prayer. He commandeth me to put it into words. Listen. O Lord our Father, our young patriots, idols of our hearts, go forth to battle, be thou near them. With them, in spirit, we also go forth from the sweet peace of our beloved firesides to smite the foe. O Lord our God, help us to tear their soldiers to bloody shreds with our shells. Help us to cover their smiling fields with the pale forms of their patriot dead. Help us to drown the thunder of the guns with the shrieks of their wounded writhing in pain. Help us to lay waste their humble homes with a hurricane of fire. 
help us to wring the hearts of their unoffending widows with unavailing grief help us to turn them out roofless with little children to wander unfriended the wastes of their desolated land in rags and hunger and thirst sports of the sun-flames of summer and the icy winds of winter broken in spirit worn with travail imploring thee for the refuge of the grave and denied it for our sakes who adore thee lord blast their hopes blight their lives protract their bitter pilgrimage make heavy their steps water their way with their tears stain the white snow with the blood of their wounded feet we ask it in the spirit of love of him who is the source of love and who is the ever faithful refuge and friend of all that are sore beset and seek his aid with humble and contrite hearts amen after a pause ye have prayed it if ye still desire it speak the messenger of the most high waits it was believed afterward that the man was a lunatic because there was no sense in what he said end of the war prayer by mark twain Written in 1905 in reaction to the American incursion, incursion in the Philippines, where the U.S. fought against uh, indigenous native Filipinos who were enjoyed an independence from Spain, but the U.S. stepped right in using the excuse of Christianity and civilization. They're going to bring civilization to the Philippines. The way they did it is the way that uh, colonials always do. War upon the Some people claim that a million Filipinos died in this so-called war. The U.S. Um, murdered, you know, hundreds of Filipinos at time. Theodore Roosevelt, the president of the time, was uh, awarded a medal to Leonard Wood, the general at the, at the time, talking about what a wonderful job. What's the connection? Well, they're, these are colonial. These are colonial actions. Israeli action against Gaza is the result of a long history of colonialism. Forces of Zionism as they came into Palestine over. Aided by English, they're trying to be good guys. I think it was Balfour was trying to be a good guy. Jews were taking, were catching hell all over the world as they have for of years as well. And so the 
English who were sort of guarding Palestine in the 30s, allowed the forces of Zionism to enter in and help them take away land from 750 Palestinians. Because the Israelis who were looking for land from Israeli state settling Palestine too Jews didn't want to be in Europe so this dream of Palestine Paul Newman Exodus I am a Jew and this is God did Jewish people. I know what Allah had to say about that. At any rate, that's the war prayer by Mark Twain. And remember, when you pray for victory in war, you pray for the other side to get utterly defeated. Their God, whose God is stronger. Horrific thing that's going on. It's hard to. Radio Labor Action Action Labor Action News on Radio Labor This is a Radio Labor World Report recorded on Friday, December 1st, 2023. I'm Mark Belanger. In the report this week, a special edition on the conflict in Gaza with labor voices from both sides and singing... This is Radio Labor. (laughs) Which one is Israeli? Which one is Palestinian? The crying on both sides has to end. That is why the International Trade Union Confederation has called for an immediate and durable ceasefire, 
the ITUC, is the world body which represents national union centers, such as the Palestine General Federation of Trade Unions, the PGFTU, and the General Federation of Labor in Israel, known by its Hebrew name of Histadut. In this edition of Radio Labor's World Report, we will hear from Dr. Salama Abu Zaitio, the president of the General Trade Union of Health Workers in Gaza. We will also hear from Avital Shapira, the international director of the Histadut. Dr. Abu Zaitir spoke in an online conference organized this week by Public Services International. The PSI is the global body which represents national public service unions. The conference was moderated by Susanna Baria, the sub-regional secretary for the PSI's Andean sub-region. I am very pleased to introduce Dr. Salma Abu Zaitar, who is the president of the General Trade Union of Health Workers in Gaza. And I would like to ask Dr. Salma Abu Zaitar to take the floor. Good evening to you all. I will try through my intervention to give you an idea about what is happening uh, on the ground. It is an honor uh, today uh, to be with you and to portray the suffering of our people due to the barbaric aggression against Gaza. And I would like to say that our people have been suffering for 75 years from the Israeli occupation and its racist practices that have resulted in expulsion and forced displacement since 1948. The scene repeats itself as the occupation continues, coinciding with the tightening of the blockade on Gaza, the construction of the separation barrier, the uh, uh, well-known wall, the isolation of the West Bank governorates, the desecration of sacred places, the assault on women and children, etc., People are still suffering from the occupation policy, attempts to Judaize Jerusalem, as well as the expropriation of land and the construction of settlements as part of a systematic plan to steal the Palestinian uh, land. Our poor people now is suffering from a genocide, ethnic cleansing, destruction of buildings, institutions, hospitals, schools, universities, mosques and churches, in addition to the destruction of infrastructure aiming at putting an end to any manifestation of life and push people into exile. The occupier is not respecting at all uh, human uh, uh, rights. Uh, And here I would like to share with you some uh, statistics. The number of martyrs exceeded up till now 15,000, including more than uh, 6,000 children and more than 4,000 women which means that nearly 69% of the martyrs are children and women. uh, 207 medical staff, namely doctors, nurses, and paramedics were killed, as well as 26 members of the civil defense. More than 70 journalists were targeted and killed in an attempt to blur the truth, stifle the Palestinian perspective, and hide war crimes. The number of wounded exceeded Uh, 36,000, of whom more than 75% are children and women. More than 1 million people were displaced and live now in schools and shelters in Gaza. uh, 50,000 residential units were completely destroyed, while 
240,000 were partially destroyed, which means that more than 60% of residential units in the Gaza Strip were impacted by the attack. The occupation mainly targeted hospitals and the medical staff. 26 hospitals, 55 clinics, and 56 ambulances were taken out of services due to the Israeli aggression, and dozens of ambulances stopped their operations due to the lack of fuel. The Israeli occupation policy continues to target hospitals, health centers, and the medical staff in order to ruin the health sector and destroy it in a deliberate and planned manner as part of the war against hospitals and the health sector. I mentioned the crime against the Indonesian hospital and the Al-Shifa hospital, which was transformed into a military barrack, a mass graveyard. And you have all seen through the media what was happening. The media really reflected what happened to our people. And therefore, on behalf of all the healthcare workers, uh, I ask you the following. First, in light of the dire consequences of this aggression, we call on trade unions around the world to stand in solidarity with our people and support the health sector in Palestine, especially in the regions where the trade unions can have an impact and by supporting the Palestinian health uh, uh, sector so that we are uh, trying to bring justice to our people. Second, we call for a, a collective pressure in order to reach a permanent and unconditional ceasefire and end the Israeli uh, blockade on the Gaza Strip. Third, to demand relentlessly for the opening of crossings and guarantee the arrival of humanitarian uh, aid and stop uh, eviction of people from the north of the Strip to the south. Fourth, we call for the safe arrival of medicines, treatment, and life-saving medical equipment to effectively address the medical care crisis and lobby governments to ensure supply to all the striped regions. Fifth, we call on trade unionists and experts to join international missions to meet the health needs of the Gaza Strip, knowing that the needs are huge. Sixth, health workers suffered psychologically and socially from the barbaric aggression. Hence, the need for psychological and psychosocial support and training programs is needed, is acute. And we call on trade unions around the world to support an intervention plan to expand the programs and include the medical staff. Seventh, we need our friend and the free men and women of this world to support our cause in international arenas in order to put an end to the aggression, occupation, and plans to expel our people once again. Our people is suffering from the tyranny and injustice of the occupier who disregards international law conventions and the treaties and refuse to abide by UN resolutions. The occupier continues to oppress civilians, and that is why the world should bear responsibility and raise the voice to end the bloodshed of Palestinian civilians and occupation, the last occupation in the world, and recognize the right of our people to self-determination and the building of an independent Palestinian state with Jerusalem as its capital, recognized by all the countries of the world in order to achieve justice and peace and put an end to 
this aggression and this barbarity. Just after the conflict started, Ms. Shapira, the Histerut's international director, released a video statement. Dear sisters and brothers, my name is Avital Shapira, Director of International Relations of the Histerut. Since Saturday, the 7th of October, we have woken up to a nightmare in which our families, children, Holocaust survivors, disabled and other loved ones were kidnapped from their homes, suffocated and burned to death. Entire families, entire communities. I want to emphasize the war that is taking place is not against Palestinians. This is a moment for us to struggle to unequivocally defeat the religious extremism of Hamas that brought so much pain and suffering to both the Israeli and Palestinian peoples. What we have experienced is nothing short of ISIS ideology and deeds. We who support liberal values and strive for workers and human rights cannot be idle to the atrocities that are occurring and the horrific lies that are spread by Hamas and its proxies whose sole goal is to eliminate the Jewish people in a Nazi fashion. Since Hamas has taken over the Gaza Strip in 2007, it continuously violated the rights of Palestinian workers, LGBTQ communities, minorities, women, and more. The religious extremist ideology legitimizes human rights abuses of their own people daily. You and I cannot accept it. Like every nation in the world, Israel has a right to defend itself. Indeed, has a duty to protect its citizens. We cannot let the massacre we have experienced ever happen again. That is why we must put Hamas terror to an end. This is not just Israel's story. This is the story of all those who cherish life and liberty even in this worst of times, and perhaps especially in the most trying moments, it is vital to look to the long-term horizon. The Histadrut and the labor movement of Israel are committed to find a resolution that will bring peace to our region and continue our long-standing relations with the PGFTU in protecting Palestinian workers' rights who are employed in Israel. Only together we will overcome the sheer evil and create the common denominator and the necessary trust between us and the Palestinians, which will yield light, peace and hope. The ITUC, the International Trade Union Confederation, has been a longtime advocate for peace. Its general secretary, Luc Triangle, has often spoken out for an end to war and peace in the world. As a trade union movement, we are at the heart of the peace movement, and we must continue to strive for dialogue to resolve existing conflicts and prevent new ones. This helps our members, this helps the weakest in our societies. Striving for peace is striving also for democracy. Workers of the world unite. That was already nearly 200 years ago, the slogan of the first trade unions. 
it is not different today. Workers of the world unite. Now here is the All-Star International Peace Choir with Give Peace a Chance. Everybody's talking about Planet Earth, Rebirth, United Nations, Good Relations, Space Station, Starvation, Radiation, Salvation, Education, Liberation, oh! All we Peace a chance and it may last. Inshallah. Shalom. <laughs> and that's it. Labor news you can use. You can listen to our newscasts and features at radiolabor.net. I'm Mark Boulanger. Thank you for listening. And remember, it's all about global solidarity. Expressed uh, both sides of the issue. Israeli side is saying, yes, they're saying because of the proximity between Palestine and Israel has to go into Palestine and kill a lot of people. Try to get rid of Hamas, which was elected representative of the Palestinian people. Palestinian Palestine have an government. Palestine is that they want peace, stop the slaughter. They haven't quite gotten steady. Anyway, let's take a break and we'll come back and
battleground. The war between striking longshoremen and the owners of the ships whose cargo had to be moved. The fight was led by a man from Australia who went on to lead one of the most powerful left-wing unions in the country for nearly half a century. His name was Harry Bridges. I wouldn't say it was a matter of being indignant or outraged. It was, it was, I was taking care of myself. To take care of myself, I had to line up with other people and to help take care of them was a, one of those things. You know, well, you had a slogan, Workers of the World Unite. It's still a good slogan. It's an old Marxist slogan. I still use it. That's how simple it was. Workers of the World Unite. You got nothing to lose but your change. Still as good as the day it was said. We still operate by it. At least I try to. Bridges was born in Melbourne, Australia in 1901. His father was a prosperous real estate broker. He was the oldest of five children and brought up in the Catholic Church. He was an altar boy for a few years. After he finished high school, his father pressured him to join the family business, but the young man resisted. He'd read a lot of adventure stories by Jack London and wanted to go to sea instead. At the age of 16, Harry left home and set sail. For the next five years, he roamed ports all over the world. He saw poverty, degradation, injustice everywhere he went. But nowhere were maritime conditions as bad as he found on the San Francisco waterfront, where he came ashore in 1922 and found work as a longshoreman. Dock workers, called wharf rats, were miserably underpaid and exploited. They often worked 24 to 72 hours at a stretch. The employers hired men in a shape-up, a system that involved kickbacks to the foreman and pitted workers against each other just to get a job. All right, let it go, Tony. It was used on the New York waterfront as well. Anybody want to work today? Yeah, you. Yeah, you. Hey, who do you see to get a day's pay around? Hey, Mac. 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 Hey, Mac.
When he came to this country from Australia, he already had a kind of an Aussie point of view about the difference between the master class and the slave class, uh, the owning class and the working class. Uh, he had some pretty strong socialist ideas that he brought with him from Australia. It was much more common in parts of the British Empire at that point. But when he got here, he had a kind of an instinct for leadership among workers. By 1934, Harry Bridges, working with the help of the Communist Party, had built a power base that enabled the longshoremen to take on the employers. Dock workers were fed up with the brutal working conditions. They wanted decent wages, a normal working day, and most of all, a hiring hall that would eliminate the corruption of the shape-up. On May 9th of that year, 50,000 longshoremen and dock workers walked off the job, tying up every Pacific Coast port from San Diego to Seattle. As to those in this city who willfully seek to prolong strife, either for their own selfish ends or for the overthrow of this government and of the government of the United States, all of the forces at my command will be brought to bear to prevent their carrying out uh, their plan. The ship owners were absolutely convinced that they were the shock troops of capitalism in a fight to the finish against communism. And they had no trouble getting the police to protect their interests against the striking longshoremen. Harry Bridges, as chairman of the strike committee, worked quietly behind the scenes, planning strategy with the rank and file. The ship owners imported strike breakers from all over the country. On July 5th, 1934, when these men tried to open the port, a war began. Pitched battles raged up and down the waterfront. Hundreds were arrested and injured. And two men were killed, both shot in the back. I have ordered the National Guard of California to move into San Francisco strike area to safeguard life, to protect state property, and to preserve order. On July 9th, Howard S. Sperry, a striking longshoreman, and Nicholas Bordoisi, an unemployed cook, were given a funeral the likes of which had never been seen in San Francisco. Over 40,000 people lined the streets to watch the longshoremen honor their dead. The public's reaction to this funeral was astounding. When a general strike was called the next day, the entire city came to a halt in support of the longshoremen. The year was one of violent labor troubles and strikes. San Francisco's general.
auto strike gripped the city in a death-like clutch. A gasoline shortage stopped almost every wheel in town. Everyone walked or stayed at home. Serious clashes claimed many victims. Business was paralyzed and hunger threatened the city. Nobody believed that these workers could do anything. There had been strike after strike in the city where things were not achieved. The decisive force in the 34 strike was the rank and file, who in spite of red baiting, in spite of every kind of scurrilous attack, stood by, stood fast, and did not go back to work. Their strike was never broken. And each one of them had to go home every night and figure, Jesus, can we keep this up? There was enormous pressure on those men. And all they had to go with was some Aussie called a communist who wasn't even a citizen. He was offered money. I mean, they got around the waterfront that he was offered as much as $100,000. They could get the hell on a boat and go back to Australia. And he came up and even told the rank and file. They're sending the bitches off me money to leave town. You want me to take the 100000 and give it to you guys for your soup kitchen and take off? They said, no. They said, no, you... Stay right where you are. The hell with the money. Three months later, the strike was settled. And the longshoremen won the thing they wanted most, a hiring hall. Ultimately, something truly revolutionary came out of these very simple guys on the waterfront, which was a contract in 1934, a contract which permitted them to have some true control over their work, over their jobs, a hiring hall, never had been thought of before, in which the union controlled the hiring hall, though the employer paid for the hiring hall, and that they could equalize the job so that everybody would have the same amount of work and theoretically earn the same amount of money at the end of a year. A whole new system of job control. That was one point. The other point was the fact of rank-and-file control over their own lives. This was visionary, and then it happened. No longer visionary, but a fact. Now that the men have resumed work and are secure in their right to be hired from the hiring hall and are back at work again, we feel that we have gained a big victory. But no one, not even Bridges, could have foreseen the effect the hiring hall would have on the men. Once considered lowly wharf rats, they became known as Lords of the Docks. A mystique grew up around the Union that endowed the men with a sense of pride and an esprit de corps unique in the history of organized labor. Harry Bridges, meanwhile, emerged as a powerful force in the American labor movement. He also became a figure of considerable celebrity well beyond the waterfront especially in Hollywood, where liberal members of the movie colony considered him an authentic working-class hero and sought his company. Harry liked the sort of attention. He also enjoyed dancing, nightclubs, and most of all, playing the horses. By the late 1930s, Bridges was appointed West Coast Director of the Congress of Industrial Organizations, the CIO. 
His output was now called the International Longshoremen and Warehousemen's Union and had expanded to include men and women in other trades and regions. For this effort, Harry brought in a brilliant organizer, Lou Goldblatt, and together they formulated a policy that, unlike other unions, combined political goals with economic issues. I'm an officer of a left-wing trade union, and that's the way those people think, and as long as my rank and file feel that way, my job is to represent them that way. What do you mean by a left-wing trade union? Well, obviously, on the record, it's a union that means uh, that that's willing to arbitrate. Uh, <laughs> to start with, that's a matter of record. It's also a union that believes in uh, a lot of rank-and-file democracy and control. It's a union, I'm giving you my definitions now, of a left-wing union. It's a union that believes that the, uh, its officers uh, should be easy to remove and uh, should function under a setup where their wages and expenses are no more than the highest paid at the most, the highest paid worker that's a member of the union. It's also a union that recognizes that from time to time it's got to stand up and fight for certain things that mightn't necessarily only be wages, hours, and conditions. Civil liberties, racial equality, and things like that. The growing economic muscle of the longshoremen soon found political expression when in 1938 they refused to handle scrap iron bound for Japan. When we shut down ships and we refused to ship oil and scrap iron to Japan when it invaded China, there was a very radical revolutionary thing. I got a telegram from Mr. Roosevelt saying, hey, quit uh, interfering in the good uh, diplomatic relationships between two nations. But we still shut down the ships. And we said at the time, that scrap iron is going to come back on the heads of American boys. It did at Pearl Harbor. What you're doing when you do that is to interfere with the foreign policy of your country. Sure as hell are. That's our job, that's our privilege, and that's our right, and that's our duty. Right. <clears throat> Part one of the story of Harry Bridges and his union. And I want to go to another book of this essay article I wrote talks about how we can glorify the past, talk about the past and about victories that help people. We saw just now that UAW called for a ceasefire in Gaza. And so they're dealing with America. They're dealing with foreign policy. Bridges said when someone asked him, you have the right to take a position on American foreign policy as a union. Bridges' response was, you're goddamn right. Now, Harry Bridges' 
union, the ILW, is under bankruptcy. Read this article. The National Longshore and Warehouse Union, which represents 32,260 workers on Pacific Coast docks, warehouses, and Powell's books, filed September 30th, Chapter 11 Bankruptcy Protection. Chapter 11 isn't the kind of bankruptcy where an organization liquidates its assets goes out of business. It's a procedure for asking the court to relieve it of debt. ILWU is seeking bankruptcy protection because it's unable to pay $19 million in court-awarded damages to ICTSI, Philippine Stevedoring Company, operated Portland was part of the Pacific Maritime Association. ILU's agreement with PMA gave it a reduced job on the deck. <coughs> Pardon me. The ducks, docks, including the work of plugging in refrigerated shipping containers. Ships. It's a labor dispute. IABEW Local 48 because they work for the Port of Portland. The port ran publicly on October the 6th directly on October the 6th. Nixie refused to give the work to ILWU. The union went to war. According to National Labor Relations ILWU members engaged in a sustained slowdown in 2012. He sued ILWU in federal court to recoup its losses. The jury awarded $93.5 million in damages in 2019, an award that was later reduced by a judge. USCI didn't accept that reduction, went back to court, and the court date set for February 26. Leadership. The beat goes on. The, the battle of, of capitalism against unions is unremitting. Here's what ILWU President Willie Adams said. Well, we have attempted numerous times to resolve the decade-long litigation with ICTSI Oregon Incorporated. At this point, the union can no longer afford to defend against ICTSI scorched earth president press statement. So we'll keep our eye on that because it's not only about labor history shortly. It's about labor present and labor future. little little more next
Okay. Get comments on the habituation or questioning. Gaza. What's going to take for you to offer lasting peace? So we are in mid-prisoner swap uh, humanitarian pause moment in this ongoing uh, war on Gaza or the Israel-Hamas war, however you want to say it. Um, there was a pause negotiated um, with the help of Qatar, um, the country, or Qatar, or however you want to say it. Um, and this is just a little bit from Jazeera. So this is on uh, November 22nd. Israel and Hamas agreed to this temporary pause in the war that would enable the release of captives. It took significant U.S. pressure to get the deal done, which tells you it's going to be take what it's going to take in terms of U.S. pressure to get something more permanent in place, if not a transition to Palestinian self-rule of some kind. James Dorsey, who is a fellow at the at Middle East Institute in Singapore, said. Um, so, yeah, that's we'll talk about the lasting situation. But it's it seems like there was an initial four days, obviously, for Holiday. Turkey Day. Holiday break. I mean. Everybody likes to watch football. Can we just take a break and give each other a little butt pat and, uh, you know, concuss one another or whatever um, and get to it? Um, but it was interesting. So the initial prisoner swap and there have been additions. And so I, I don't know when everyone's going to be listening to this, but there have sort of been an initial, again, a two days tacked on. And I think a lot of people are hoping that this can be expanded on. I'm going to maybe pour some, uh, you know, water on that cold water blanket. You know, all of it. That um, like waterboarding. Yeah, I'm going to waterboard that hope right now. But the initial prisoner swap was really interesting, Gareth, because it was 50 Israeli hostages for 150 Palestinians. Now, don't get me wrong. As someone who's like, you know, for Palestinian human rights and understands we're going to talk about who was been in prison but i'm like this this agreement is literally defining like that one palestinian life is or three palestinian lives is equal to one palestinian i mean one israeli um this is a little bit more because it was like 150 palestinians to 50 israeli hostages it's just like i don't know you also get caught up in the numbers of the captures since this all started and when you actually start to the way that you've got to actually kind of try to recalibrate your value of human life in this is almost impo impossible to quantify, where mm -hmm. you're just kind of going like, okay, but like we, so many have been killed, like so many Palestinians have been killed since then, and you're, it's very hard to be like, what is good cumulatively anymore with all of this? It's so true. Um, I mean, and we're being told that this is like a major coup, you know, by yes. Biden and, and such, but it's so true. So one, you know, Jazeera has reported this week also that like, while 150 Palestinian prisoners were released, 133 were arrested in the West Bank. So, so. It's, like, <laughs> it's really nuts. It, it's also like, when they first started floating out the term pause, I don't even think I, I don't know if I, I, it was just like, what are you talking about? And the fact that we're actually in the midst of it now um, is it, it just shows you how low the bar really is for all this. Like you mm -hmm. said, I mean, to sort of have a holiday break is um, it's great. 
Um, but knowing that there is, you know, there's much more carnage to come. That is very obvious. The when your your goal when you know it would be one thing if your goal was a ceasefire and you were on a four day pause, but right. when your goal is a pause and you're on a four day pause, it doesn't <laughs> really give you tons of hope as far as what are we actually going for here. Yeah, I mean, I believe it was. On this day in labor history, the year was 1966. That was the day that the registered nurses of the Youngstown General Duty Nurses Association walked out of their jobs. Nursing could be a grueling profession with long hours of physical labor for low pay. In Youngstown, the nurses were frustrated because there were inconsistencies in pay. Some recently hired nurses made more than those who had been working for years. Part-time nurses did not receive the same wage increases as full-time employees. They also did not feel that they had enough say in delivering quality care for their patients. When they asked to meet with the hospital's executive director to discuss their concerns, the nurses were rebuffed. They then contacted the Ohio Nurses Association Union and asked for help. Youngstown was a steel town, a union town, and the nurses were ready to join in the local labor movement. At first, the Youngstown Hospital Association refused to bargain with the union. But when the nurses threatened to walk out, negotiations began. After two months of talking at the bargaining table, major issues remained unsettled, including pay and union recognition. Fed up, the nurses called for a mass resignation. 305 of the 433 nurses turned in their resignations. Two-thirds of them were part-time nurses. They formed informational picket lines outside the hospitals. A federal mediator was brought in to settle the dispute. In the end, the nurses won significant gains. They received a more than 25% raise over two years. A grievance procedure was established for the first time, but most importantly, the union gained recognition and the right to bargain for better wages, hours, and conditions for the nurses and their patients. Like what you hear? Check out more at LaborHistoryIn2.com. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. 
On this day in labor history, the year was 1854. That was the day that Mary McDowell, known as the Angel of the Chicago Stockyards, was born. Mary's father brought the family to Chicago from Cincinnati after the Civil War. Her family was friends with U.S. President Rutherford B. Hayes, and as a young woman, she spent a month in the White House as a guest. Mary received her college degree and worked as a teacher for a wealthy family in New York. But living and working among the wealthy was not to be the course of her life. She returned to Chicago and became a kindergarten teacher at the famed Hull House. She then became the head of the University of Chicago Settlement House in the back of the yards. The Settlement House served the diverse neighborhoods around the Chicago stockyards. The community center included a library, play lots, gymnasiums, and classrooms. Mary and her Settlement House supported the rights of workers to form unions and to have safe working conditions. In 1903, Mary became the head of the Illinois chapter of the National Women's Trade Union League. The Pittsburgh Press reported on an incident that captured the spirit of Mary McDowell. The city of Chicago had a practice of using garbage to fill holes in the streets surrounding the stockyards. Mary showed up at the mayor's office with a group of women from the neighborhood and demanded, quote, All right, we want the rest of it dumped on Lakeshore Drive. If it's good enough for the stockyards, it's good enough for the drive, too. As a result, the city stopped using garbage to repair the streets. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show. For more information, go to laborhistoryin2.com. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 2001. That was the day that energy trading giant Enron filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy. It was the biggest bankruptcy in U.S. history up to that time. At its peak, the Houston-based Enron was the seventh largest company in the country. A combination of mismanagement and all-out greed sank Enron. The company used numerous accounting tricks and loopholes to hide billions of dollars of debt from its shareholders. In August of 2000, shares of the company were worth $90.75. But by November 30, 2001, they had plummeted to just 26 cents. After filing bankruptcy, thousands of Enron employees were left to go down with the ship. Many employees and retirees had thousands of dollars worth of Enron stock. Employees were told the company would recover. They were encouraged not to sell off their stock and even to buy more. While at the same time, top executives were dumping their stock holdings. When the company went under, the employees' retirement accounts were wiped out. Some who had already retired had to re-enter the workforce. The following January, a New York Times report shared the stories of some of the 4,000 employees laid off in the immediate aftermath of the bankruptcy. One was told he lost his job by voicemail. Another was told he had 30 minutes to clear out his desk. Multiple lawsuits won a portion of the money back for Enron stockholders. But the employees lost more than $2 billion in retirement funds. In the end, more than 20 top executives were found guilty for the crimes they committed while running the company. Enron became synonymous with the corporate greed that has been the hallmark of 21st century America. For more information, go to laborhistoryin2.com, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at laborhistoryin2. I'm Rick Smith.
labor history in two. of the big executives get out of here Green, Nero, my friend of mine and yours friend of everybody one of the country's outstanding musicians plays now guitar Blues speak of so many things and making a kind of variety. Wonder if one person gets a dollar they didn't work for, someone dollar they created miracles, but it don't make sense when we can't make peace. You know, you made everything else, wise men, great men, from every nation in the world, all the countries in the world, have all kinds of conventions and festivals. Spend all the money. Suppose you had to spend half as much money on trying to make peace as you have been making war. We wouldn't have to worry about nothing. But it don't make sense. It don't make sense. It don't make sense. When you can't make peace.
on a raft without a patter. We'll gather around me sea dogs and get aboard me pirate ship as we set sail for the seas of mutiny radio.fm. From there you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures. They've got live comedy to small business advice, LGBTQ friendly to sports, vinyl to gutter punk. MutinyRadio.fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shit-faced McRat. <laughs> Homely Patrick Namaste. Every Monday at 6 p.m., it's Joke Workshop, streaming live on MutinyRadio.fm. Lift the veil from your third eye on joke creation and what it takes to be a stand-up comic in the five shakasanas of San Francisco's comedy scene. This all-ages open mic invites comedy. Oh, pre-sign. By Venmoing two to five dollars at Mutiny Radio. Join us live for a small and special audience at the Mutiny Radio Studio and Gallery Performance Space, 2781 21st Street at Florida Street in the deep, deep, deep mission. Every Monday at 6 p.m. Does my ponytail look cool? Thank you. Namaste. Tuesday used to be the most unlikely night for fun. But every week at 6 p.m., come to OMG's Tuesday Open Mic. And see comics work out new material for free. For free. They get your Tuesday night party on with two-for-one well drink specials during the 6 to 8 p.m. show. Check out Eventbrite to reserve your free seat every Tuesday, 6 p.m. At OMG on Savory 6th Street. Savory 6th Street. Show up to go up. Hey, kids. It's your pal, Spiderman. <laughs> Sorry, Spiderman. Mortimer Spiderman. When I'm not swinging through the senior facility, best in Mysterio at Boggle, or getting beautifully plowed by the Rhino, I'm headed down to Mutiny Radio at the corner of 21st and Florida. They got some schlemiels doing the laugh laugh. But hey, don't be a schmuck and donate 2 to $5 on... Hold, hold on, what is this? Let me get my glasses. The print's too small. Hold on. Ben Moe? That's not real. What is that, Swedish? You knew that, right? This is in San Francisco. I'll drown it on. I'll, it's nap time. Weekly comedy at the best neighborhood bar in the city. 
Join your friends from Mutiny Radio every Thursday at 8 p.m. at the Bar on Dolores at 29th and Dolores. Starting after any very important sports game that might happen to be on, you're guaranteed a night of laughter for free. And when paired with the drink specials and the nicest bartender in San Francisco, it'll become a Thursday ritual. Show up to go out for comics, and please reserve your free tickets on Eventbrite so we know you're coming to laugh. Happy hour the, is when the comedy is the cheapest. Happy hour, the most free two hours of hour-long comedy on the radio and internet streaming live. Two seven eight one Twenty First Street. Come down, be in the audience. Dog friendly. Dog friendly. We are. Mutiny Radio is absolutely dog friendly. Ooh, a dog party. Ain't no party like a dog party. Dog party at Mutiny Radio. Every Friday, dog party at Mutiny Radio. Happy hour. <laughs> 2781 21st Street. Happy hour. Mutiny Radio. FM. Here in SF. Calling all crusties, punks, and poses. Pick your posteriors up off the pavement. Pack up your pins and patches and prepare to party. The Pacific Northwest Vest Fest returns this Saturday only at the SeaTac Expo Center. Whether you're a leather lover or just a denim demon, if you're looking to dress to impress for less, do not stress. You'll find all the best in pre-distressed vests right here at the Pacific Northwest Vest Fest. With over 40 vendors selling countless crossover styles, you'll find the perfect thing for your scene. Metal, thrash, Walmart, high-vis, and everything in between. All in one place. One day only. Unless it's a jacket. If you need a jacket, take your square ass somewhere else. Never pay for fabric you don't need and ditch the sleeves, but save the rest for the Pacific Northwest Fest Fest this Saturday only at SeaTac. Bring a can of PBR, get it half price. Daddy, Daddy, what are we going to do today? At 2 p.m. on a Saturday afternoon? Oh, over there at the parklet in front of Atlas Cafe for Titans of Comedy. That, that's Titans of Comedy. Apparently, they've got great sandwiches, cafe drinks, and even some of my favorite beverages, like beer, wine, and sangria. All the things I drink to forget your mother. I knew Uncle Blake says you smell like a brewery. What did I say about interrupting me? Anywho, right here on 20th and Alabama in the Deep Mission, paired with tasty comedy from Bay Area's favorite comics. For free! Every Saturday. Or at least the two Saturdays a month that the court mandates I have to see you. It's sunshine! And even in a drizzle, but not too much. Hey, Daddy, remember after soccer practice when it was raining and you didn't come? I really don't. Anywho. You take it with the freezers. Reservations. Reservations on Eventbrite. Fucking. L-S-D. Fap. Acid and fapping. Fapping and acid. Acid and fapping. Fapping and acid. Fap, 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 acid. Thank you. That song is called Acid and Fapping. Or download a podcast and you can listen on the go. Listen to live streaming radio. Or download a podcast and you can listen on the go. San Francisco Mutiny Radio. San Francisco. 
I was just leaving the theater. Convertible. 1969 gold Cadillac with the white material and I drove it up here. And I started to do some thinking. And it on the freeway and I'm having a really, really good time. Flat black glass. Smoking big spliffs and cruising that Cadillac on the freeway. Good feeling, I'll tell you. Can I see? Hello, Blake. Henry! Yeah, Charlie here. Yeah. I have a report here, Henry, from your, uh, from your chief nurse, Major O'Houlihan. She makes some accusations, Henry. I, I, 